Open the precious Word of God with me to Romans chapter 8, where we shall consider some of the most fantastic, wonderful, precious, powerful words that have ever been written. To think that the God of heaven, our Creator, the Lord of the ends of the earth, the Lord of heaven, the great and dreadful God, would write these words to us of His guarantee of our salvation. And all the operations of grace that are part of it, so that no one and no thing that they could do to us on earth can stay His commitment and promise that He will save us forever. There is in these words great comfort and assurance for our souls. Amen. These words describe our salvation as the work of God and upon which we can rest our lives in this world and the hope of eternal life in the world to come. These are precious words. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. Follow with me. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called... Them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And amen. Thank you, Lord, for such precious words. Let us pray briefly. Our Father in heaven, we are too cold, too carnal, too pampered to fully appreciate these words. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, By whom are all things, for whom are all things, and to whom are all things, that you would send your Holy Spirit to cause us to appreciate these words as much as we are able. Open our minds and our understanding that we might take these words to ourselves and thank the blessed God for all that he has promised and guaranteed us. These are wonderful words. Forgive us in advance for not delighting in them as much as we should. But, O Lord, help us to do so. We ask in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory. Amen. Amen. I truly fear that we do not... Appreciate these words as much as we should. They would consume your life. They would consume my life if we understood them like we should. These are the promises and guarantees of the God of heaven. For your life now and your life to come after death. Unbelievable promises. Precious wording. Seven rhetorical questions to get your attention on how weighty And certain these promises are. Lord, help us. We have not too long ago studied Romans 8 verses 17 through 25, which describe the whole creation groaning in travail and pain until the manifestation of the sons of God. The earth is a stage and on it is being played out a drama. And that drama is that God has chosen and called some men to be his sons. And the Lord is going to reveal those sons to the whole universe. And that's what the whole creation is moving toward. Sin has the whole creation groaning in travail and pain. But Jesus Christ is going to rescue the whole creation and us. And it's going to be delivered into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. We considered that not too long ago. After that, we considered Romans 8, 1 through 15, where it taught us that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And the evidence of those that are not any longer under condemnation is that they walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. Because the Spirit witnesses to their spirit that they are indeed the sons of God. Today, we take verses 28 through 39. This is the favorite chapter in the Bible of many. The book of Romans is 16 chapters long and is divided first at the end of chapter 11. Romans chapters 1 through 11 
describe our salvation. Romans 12 through 16 describe what we owe the Lord because of that. The 11 chapters on salvation can be divided again at the end of chapter 8. The first eight chapters describe our salvation directly with verses, with chapters 9 through 11 describing God's dealings with the nation of the Jews. So we come to these last words of Paul's direct eight chapter summary of the doctrine of salvation. And as he closes out, he uses rhetorical questions and glorious statements of promise and guarantee that leave us absolutely sure that God will take care of us in this life and he'll take care of us after this life. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Without persecution and tribulation, we cannot fully appreciate these verses because these verses are written to men, women, boys and girls who suffered for following Jesus Christ. And so there's great comfort in these verses. When it speaks in verse 35 of seven problems that faced them, you don't know about any of those seven. If you say you do, you're limiting yourself to just the first couple or three, and then in such a minor degree that it's not fair. We don't know that verse like we ought to know it. I wish I could do for you what a preacher I heard when I was 12 years old did for me. He was preaching about living and dying for Jesus Christ and telling of his ministry in the nation of Romania. I was 12. It was a Sunday afternoon. My father gave me permission to go with an aged sister in our church who wanted me to hear this man. I remember as he built his case and told about being imprisoned for the cause of Jesus Christ and describing the pain and suffering he went through and having left his wife and children behind when he was hauled off to prison, that he started taking off his clothes. He peeled off his jacket. He peeled off his shirt. He peeled off his t-shirt and stood there so that we could all see the one and two inch dimples over his body and back where he had been burned with hot pokers. Now that was an impressive visual aid for a 12-year-old boy. And I wish I could do something like that, but I'm going to have to ask you to rely on the eyes of faith to hear these words and to appreciate just how wonderful they were to that audience that got them first and how wonderful they should be to you and me. Because though we may not endure the same kind of persecutions and tribulations, the promises and the guarantees are still sure, they're still personal, and they're still ours. Richard Wormbrand, Mary Walker, I remember. I'm thankful. Thank you for letting me go. How many of you have read Fox's Book of Martyrs? It's a great book to read. Do you know what the top sellers in this nation were for a couple of hundred years? The King James Bible? Pilgrim's Progress, 
and Fox's Book of Murders. John Fox gave us a listing. It's seven volumes long if you ever had the unabridged version. Brother Newell has it. If you buy the little dime store copy that you can get in a Christian bookstore that's only several hundred pages long, that's the abbreviated version. But it's a listing of the martyrs. It gives their name. It gives the dates. It gives their so-called offenses and the charges laid against them. But then it tells the story of those that were more than conquerors who would sing while the flames devoured their bodies, who would forgive their tormentors as they gave up their lives, who thanked their persecutors for hastening their transition to heaven by killing them. Praise God that there were ancestors like that in our past. May we live for the Lord based on these words, though he may not ask us to die for him. If you can have a little bit of a martyr's mentality as you work down through these 12 verses, you'll find them to take on a little bit of extra meaning. We are a sissified group of Christians in a pampered generation. We do not know what distress and persecution, famine. The last time you were hungry, it only lasted for 30 minutes. Famine. Nakedness. You go to your closet and you walk into it because for most of you it's a walk-in closet. And your biggest choice is what do I wear today? But these people were naked for the cause of Christ. Because they were stripped of their clothing and driven out into the woods and forests to try to find a living. You can read about them by name if you were to ever pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs. All of that was said, I hope it helps you appreciate this chapter. The Lord has blessed me in the privacy of my office without being at a stake, but remembering the ones I've read about, especially the 35th verse, has been so comforting to me to think of my brethren, like John, who was on the Isle of Patmos for the Word of God, when it lists those seven things, and it says, Can any of these things... And those that do these things to us separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is in verse 37. No way! No way! That's what the Greek means for the word nay. No way can those things separate us from the love of Christ. We are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. So they could die at the stake... And know that they were more than a conqueror of those that were burning them. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was standing with them. He is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. The Apostle Paul could stand before Nero and say, Though all men forsook me, the Lord stood with me. And he knew all these guarantees and promises. Go ahead and kill the body. Because my eternal glorification is guaranteed. Because God gave His only Son for me. He delivered Him up for me. How shall He not also with Him freely give me all things? And they could die for the cause of Jesus Christ. Can we live for the cause of Jesus Christ from these words? I hope so. Lord, help us. What's the nicest thing? What is the greatest promise anyone has ever made to you? What are the nicest, kindest, fullest words that have ever been expressed to you 
or the most powerful promises ever made to you. They are a joke in comparison to these words. No man can offer you anything compared to this. These are the words of the God of heaven. Several of these verses could, maybe they should, deserve a sermon of their own. But we'll try to cover all 12 today if the Lord will be with us. Let's go to that first verse, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. I hope that most of you know it by memory. Word perfect. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Amen and amen. It is a shame that these words are used as a mantra by so many who do not fully understand the whole verse. They love to quote the first half of the verse to justify anything they get themselves into. There are many sincere Armenians. And I'm not speaking of them at the very moment. I'm speaking of those that would just quote these verses, print them, frame them, and put them on a wall. But these words are not a mantra. These words are a guarantee and a promise for a select part of the human race. These words do not apply to all. You cannot look at this verse and then write a track that the first spiritual law is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God has a wonderful plan for the lives of His elect, those who are the called according to His purpose. There are many sincere Arminians who love the first half of this verse, and they delight in it. And as far as God has opened up their understanding, they're faithful to it in appreciating the first half of the verse. But we also love the second half of the verse because it tells us to whom does the first half apply to them who are the called according to his purpose. It is God's purpose to choose and call some to be his sons and then to bless them by causing everything in their lives to work together for their good. Praise the Lord. That is a characteristic, and that is a blessing of the righteous. Let's look at that verse. And we have a conjunction opening up verse 28 for us. When we've got the word and, we should usually, even though the Bible uses it many, 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 many times, and even though you were taught in school to never start a sentence with the word and, there's about 50,000 sentences in the Bible, I speak as a fool, There's only thousands that start with and. But when we see the word and, is there a connection? Yes, there is. And. Paul is comforting the Roman saints. There was a church. We do not know where it met or how many members it had in the pagan city of Rome. In the city that is called a woman. In Romans, in Revelation chapter 17, that was drunk with the blood of the saints. Because in the last verse of that chapter, John, by the Spirit and by Jesus Christ, gave us some wisdom. That's, that woman that I just told you about, John said, is that city that reigneth over the kings of the earth. And at the time John was writing Revelation, Rome reigned over the kings of the earth. 
and she was drunk, and she would be even drunker yet with the blood of the saints and those that believed on Jesus Christ. So we have words written to a little congregation in the midst of paganism, in the midst of Rome. That Rome had sent an appointee to rule over Judea named Herod Antipas, who had killed John the Baptist for a birthday present. Herod Agrippa I cut off the head of James with a sword. The governor named Pilate had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, though he knew he was innocent. In the face of an empire like that come these words to the believers in that city. And because they were in the city of Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire... Romans chapter 1 tells us that their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. People heard that there was a church in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Praise the Lord. And Paul has given them three things so far. In verses 1 through 16, he has told them, Brethren, there is no further condemnation. There is now no condemnation Upon you, you are saved from the horrible dilemma of chapter 7, where Paul said, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The first 16 verses of chapter 8 tell us that it was God through Jesus Christ, that they were the sons of God. It was being witnessed to them by the Spirit of God within them. And there was no condemnation left upon them because Jesus Christ had put it all away. The second thing Paul had already told them was in verses 17 through 25. That the whole creation, the whole drama of what God has created is moving toward one common goal. One great event. And they were going to be players on a stage. Except they wouldn't be playing and they wouldn't be acting. It was going to be the manifestation of the sons of God to the universe. Those are my children. You are my enemies. Enter thou into the joy of my Lord. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. The manifestation of the sons of God. That's verses 17 through 25. What a glorious statement is described there about everything moving toward this huge event when God's going to free this world from sin and burn up the sinful aspects of it and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth And the sons of God will be displayed to all men and all angels. And will enter into the eternal state. Then in verses 26 and 27. He had told them that God had given them the spirit. Not only to witness within them that they were the sons of God. But also to help them in their infirmities. So that when they felt so distressed that they could not pray for their situation. The Holy Spirit would pray for them with groanings. Which could not be uttered. And that Holy Spirit would pray according to the will of God for them. Verses 26 and 27. And, okay, I want you to appreciate the and. And, in addition to being no longer under condemnation, in addition to knowing that the whole universe is moving toward their display as being the sons of God, in addition to the Holy Spirit being given to help them through their infirmities, and we have verse 28. And God will work every single event in your life out for your good. Which would be of great comfort to them, and it should be of great comfort to us. 
and that's what the word and is there for. The verse could have started out with the word we, but it started out with the word and to connect us to all that's been given to these saints already in this chapter. And we. We. In its first writing, that is the Apostle Paul and the saints at Rome, because he starts out chapter 1 saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. That's the audience. Those that God loves and is called to be saints. And we, he and they, should know. But because the Bible is written like it is, it was a letter from Paul to a specific church. Yet we, as Gentiles in the New Testament church as well, can take those words and apply them to us. That we is not to be passed out on street corners. That we is not to be hauled into prisons and stuffed through every cage. That we is for the Apostle Paul, the saints at Rome, and everyone else that God loves and is called to be saints. So when a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and lives a life of sanctified holiness for the Lord Jesus Christ, he is one of these to whom this verse applies. And not until then. You can't sell this in a bookstore and think that anybody that takes this framed word, these framed words home and puts it on their wall is going to receive the blessing. Because the we is the Apostle Paul himself and those beloved of God in that city of Rome who were called to be saints, who had already believed and been baptized. And so it applies to them. And we know. We know. The children of God can know certain things that are essential for their spiritual health and the building up of their faith. I believe you know this verse. But we want to make sure we know it. Because it says, and we know. Not, and we hope. Not, and we think. Not, and we believe. But we know that what, what we're about to read is true. We should be fully and finally set in God's sovereign love for us. And how He works every event in our lives for our profit and His glory. It's the fearful and the unbelieving that talk about having a weak and unsure hope of such things. Paul did not do so. Paul spoke of knowing this for a fact. Are you solidly established in verses like this so that your feet will not slide? You will not slip? Your heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord? This is a promise from the God of heaven. You have never, nor will you ever, have words given to you by anyone else that can even approach these sentences. And we know that all things, all things in your life, all things, the infirmities of verse 26, the suffering of verses 17 and 18, all things work together for good. All things including the foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification that's to follow in the next two verses. All things work together for good. 
the events of life, natural and spiritual and eternal, are all coordinated together by God Almighty. Because it says, and we know that all things work together. They're coordinated together. There is only one mind able to coordinate all the events of your life and the person sitting next to you, in front of you, and behind you that is sitting in other congregations this morning elsewhere in the earth and work all the events of their lives together in a coordinated pattern for a coordinated objective of the profit and good of those people. There's only one mind, and it's the mind of God our Father. And it is magnificent to think about it. For those of you that think about computers and probabilities and and statistics and take those classes in college, there is no way for you or those devices to calculate the permutation and combination of events that interact upon each other that work on all of our lives. But it says all things work together for good. There's only one being that can do that. Do you know how hard it is for us to control a single, small event in our lives? We are pitiful. We can do nothing in comparison to God our Father. This is Almighty God. There is no limit to His mind. His understanding is infinite. And so all things are under His government. Even sin is under His government. That's right. We do not sin in order for good to come. That's already been condemned in this book, so none of these readers had a problem. They already understood that we do not sin in order for good to come, because that's condemned in chapter 3 and verse 8. But we know that God is able to even use sin to accomplish good in our lives. Right. And He does. You can think of Joseph for a moment, can't you? Was there a sin involved in Joseph's brethren and their hatred toward him? Did it bring about good according to Genesis chapter 45 and 50? Oh yes, it did. Because God is able to work all things together for good. Do you think that Joseph knew this verse when he was sold to the Midianite slave train and was taken down into Egypt, put on a block there, and sold to Potiphar, the head of Pharaoh's guard? Did he know this verse? Well, be careful. Did Joseph know the verse? By the Holy Spirit of God, Joseph knew that God would take care of him in all things, including what was happening to him. But we have it in writing, brethren. We have it in writing. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good. The Lord coordinates all events in our lives For good. Our good, His good. Our profit, His glory. The Lord's able to do that. Are you able to look back on your life and see the events of your life and thank God for the things He did in your life? For the coordinated circumstances that He arranged by His sovereign power and His wonderful love for us to bring you to a place where you would know His Son, Jesus where you would have a place in this church, where you would have His Word in your tongue in a nation where it's freely allowed. And on and on we could go. Are you able to look at some of the foolish things you've done in your life 
and realize that uh, God got glory out of them and you got punished for them and you've learned some valuable lessons and you're better because of them? Right. Are you able to do that? Yes. Praise the God of heaven. He's able to coordinate all things together for good. Amen. We may get overwhelmed sometimes by our circumstances, but God doesn't. Amen. He doesn't get overwhelmed with all the circumstances of the whole human race. And right now there's about 6.7 billion of them. But God doesn't get overwhelmed. He's working all things in your life together for good. And then it goes on to tell us, Of whom is this true? And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God. To them that love God. The Bible tells us to believe on God. The Bible tells us to believe on His Son, Jesus Christ. But the Bible also tells us to love God and that we should love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is the first and greatest commandment of all. And it's those that love God that this is true of. Because those that love God were first loved by Him or they would not love God. Which is part of what follows to them who are the called according to His purpose. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Psalm 10 and verse 4 tells us that God is not in all the thoughts of the wicked. They never even think about Him, let alone love Him. Psalm 10, 4. What makes a difference in a man's life? That he would love God. Because God first loved him. And changed his heart and opened his heart to love God. And put that love there. We cannot use these words as a mantra. We cannot just memorize the verse and throw them around. These words apply to them that love God. If you don't love God and you're not a child of God, then God is working all things together for His profit and your eventual pain and trouble. His ears are open unto the cries of the righteous. His eyes are open unto their affairs. He approves of what they do and blesses them. But not the wicked. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Does that sound like all things working together for good? The face of the Lord is against them, but the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears are open unto their cry. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that have a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. But evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. And on and on we could read in that and other passages as well. That was Psalm 34. Thank you, Lord, for Romans 8:28. To them that love God. Now, do you love God this morning? Do you belong in Romans 8:28? If you can't get yourself into Romans 8:28, then verses 29 through 39 don't apply to you either. Do you belong in Romans 8:28? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Do you love God this morning? It is not a mental assent 
that love of God is a good thing? Are you driven by a passionate desire to please and serve and obey and honor the God of heaven? Do you love Him more than you love yourself? Do you love Him more than you love your family, your wife, your children? Do you love Him more than you love your brothers and sisters, your houses and lands? Do you love Him more than pleasure? Or are you one of those in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that is a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God? These words do not belong to you unless you love God. Do you love God this morning? Jesus Christ would say, if you love me, keep my commandments. If we love God, then we fear displeasing Him. We crave obeying Him. We want to learn more about Him. We delight in Him if we love Him. If we love Him, everything about Him is interesting, fabulous, pleasing to us. When you stepped outside this morning, where was your mind? Where was your heart? Did you bless the God of heaven for such a blue sky? Did you thank Him for the rays of His light bulb that stroked your face? On the way here, did you say, thank you, Lord, for health and strength? Thank you for letting me be born in this country. Thank you for letting me go into your house and worship you. Did you tell Him that? If you didn't have any of those thoughts desires. How can you know that you love him? On what basis do you love him? He doesn't care if you love doctrine. Do you love him? Right. To them that love God. The love of God will change your life. Amen. Do you know the difference in your life between when you loved God and when you didn't? Are you in the part that's loving God now? Or are you in the other part where you don't know? It's not that complicated. You know how to tell everybody else when you love them. Do you love God? Do you want to make Him happy? Do you want to please Him? Do you want to serve Him? Do you want to give Him all that you are, all that you have, all that you'll ever have? Do you delight in thinking about Him, talking about Him, talking to Him, reading His love letter to you? Do you love God? How can I race over those words? Everybody wants to preach on Romans 8.28. Everyone wants to talk about Romans 8.28. It doesn't belong to you unless you love God. The most important thing we can do right now is to determine whether we love God. If we love God, then we're going to love His Word. If we love God, then we're going to love what He tells us to do in order to please Him. Nothing's going to be too hard for us. Nothing will be so dear to us that we can't give it up for Him. Do you love God? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Oh, Lord, help us love you more. Forgive us for not loving you more. The martyrs love not their lives unto the death because they loved God so much they would die for him. Can we live for him? Then it says about those that love God to them who are the called. If you love God, 
it is because God called you to love him. If you love God, it's because God called you to be his son and put the love of him in your heart or you would not love him. To them who love God, to them that love God, to them who are the called. The calling in the word of God is something we want to learn and understand. It is not a phone call. It is not an audible call. It is not a gospel call. It is God's call. And God's call is His appointment or charge or command or ordination of you to be something. Your calling is your place or role in life. Some of you have been called to be mothers. How do I know that? Because God appointed you the female sex a husband, conception, and motherhood. He didn't ask you. He just appointed it. There is God's call and there is the gospel call. And if you haven't been called by God, the call of the gospel will do you no good. I do not believe in the effectual call. I don't care how many noble men, good men, great men have written about something they call the effectual call. Those two words are not in the Bible. And they can't prove them from the Bible. Until a man is called by God, the gospel is foolishness to him. 1 Corinthians 1.24 tells us that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. 1.18. says, to the Greeks it's foolishness. To the Jews it's a stumbling block. But unto them which are called, it's the power and wisdom of God. Only if God's called first will the gospel ever mean to it, mean anything to us when it calls us. The call of the gospel is simply to bring life and immortality to light. The call of God brings life and immortality. It gives it. Jesus Christ will call all the dead bodies out of the graves at the end of this world. And he calls all of us into eternal life by the voice of the Son of God. It is a life-giving voice. It is a life-giving call. It is the call that makes us his children. I don't want to get off too far on this word call. In fact, we may have a sermon shortly to deal specifically with the word call. Because it's one of the wide, it's one of the words in the New Testament used with a wide latitude. Right. You know, God called to some men out of heaven. That was an audible sound of God's voice telling them something. Asking them something. That's a call. But then there's the call when God appoints someone to be something. God told Moses to build him a tabernacle. And that tabernacle, the, the blueprint for it, was given to Moses in Mount Sinai. And Moses came down and Moses didn't have a clue on how to build that thing. It was very complex. If you've ever read the book of Leviticus and the book of Exodus, you know it was quite complex. And so Moses is looking at this blueprint and God said, See, I have called by name Bezalel. He's going to build that thing for you because I've put within Bezalel, then it takes about four verses to describe all of the abilities that God had already given to Bezalel in order for him to make the tabernacle. And that's the call of God. God didn't ask Bezalel when he was in the womb, how would you like to be gifted 
when you're born. How would you like to build the tabernacle with all those gifts? God just said, you are going to be my builder, Bezalel. I've called you by name. In every science project that you take on in school, you're going to get an A+. Every time you design something, it's going to turn out beautifully. Every engineering school in the country is going to want you. You're going to be a craftsman with no peer. Because God had called him. That wasn't an invitation. It wasn't an offer. It wasn't a request. It was an appointment. When Paul said, I was appointed... When, I, when Paul says, I was called to be an apostle, what does he mean? Paul, how would you like to be my apostle? Oh, no. Oh, no. He tells us what he means in 1 Timothy when he gets personal with another minister on what it means to be called of God. God appointed me an apostle and God ordained me an apostle. Those are the other two synonyms that God uses for the word call. God didn't appear on the road to Damascus to Saul to ask him if he wanted to be an apostle. God appeared in the road to Damascus to tell Paul he was going to be an apostle. Because he had already chosen him to be an apostle. Do you know when he chose him to be an apostle? Do you know when Paul's life was under the control of God to be an apostle? Galatians 1, 15 and 16 tells us that God separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace. And then He revealed His Son in me that I might preach Him among the heathen. In Galatians 1.15, the Apostle Paul isn't talking about the fact that God cut his umbilical cord to his mother when he said, separated me from my mother's womb. He's saying, from my birth, God had his plan on me that I was going to be his apostle. Right. It's the same way with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the first few verses of chapter 1, tell us the same thing. To them who are the called. You have a calling, brethren, and it's called your vocation in the Bible. And your vocation is more than being a banker. It's more than being a financial analyst. It's more than installing glass. What is your vocation? To be a son of God. And you were appointed to it and ordained to it. And because you were ordained to it, that is why you believe the gospel. Acts chapter 13, 48 tells us, And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. 1 Corinthians 1.24, but to them which are called, the gospel is the power and wisdom of God. 1.18, to them which are saved, it is the power of God. You're saved first. You're called first. Then you hear the gospel and you believe it. Then the gospel can call you. Because the Bible says, many are called by the gospel, but few are chosen by the God of the gospel. Right. Are you with me? It's a shame that there's so much misunderstanding about the call. We don't believe that the gospel calls men the way that those who talk about an effectual call tell us. We believe that God calls us by His grace, by His powerful life-giving voice, by His appointment, by His design, by His regeneration through the Spirit. We're called. We are appointed, ordained, made, enabled, gifted, and filled with the Spirit of God. All part of our calling to be the sons of God. Then we hear the gospel that calls us to live and act like sons. The reason I'm spending this time in it is because in verses 29 and 30 we have the word called again. We want to understand how that fits into God's five-linked golden chain of salvation. 
Verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called. Those that are called to be sons. They have a calling and a vocation that is different from everyone else. They are the sons of God. The Spirit bears witness of it. It is why they're going to be predestined. It's why they were predestinated that Jesus Christ could have many brethren. It's their vocation. And they're to walk as dear children. That's what, he, that's what epistles are written for. To tell those that are called of God to be children on how to walk as dear children. Ephesians 4, 1 and 5, 1 are very precious when they're compared that way. It's God's charge and His command, His order, His ordination that result in us being the sons of God. These Romans are already been told that they're the called of God in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Called to be saints. They are the called of Jesus Christ, according to those two verses. It means that they're the elect of God to be His children, and that they have been regenerated with the abilities and enablement and gifts to be the children of God. It's their calling in life. Just like you have a couple or several callings. If you're a a mother, you're probably a wife. If you're a wife, you're a woman. All of those are callings God's given you. He didn't, when He called you to be a woman, He didn't ask you. He just made you one. And when God calls us to be His sons, He makes us sons. And then He tells us by His gospel what He did to make us sons and what we can do to please Him as sons. Many are called by the gospel, but few are chosen. Last of all, in this verse, it says that that calling of God, which is the basis for us loving God, is according to His purpose. It's God's purpose that works all of this. God has a purpose in the world. We are not deists. God did not just create this big thing and and get it spinning and then leave it alone and sit back and watch us from a distance as our generation likes to sing and think. God has a purpose, or you wouldn't exist. God's purpose is His glory. God's purpose is His praise. God's purpose is His pleasure. You only exist for Him. Where do you think you came from? Did you bring about your existence? Were you asked if you wanted to exist? God has a purpose in your existence. God has a purpose with the clay of mankind. He tore off a chunk of that clay, and He made to Himself vessels of mercy, which were afore prepared unto glory. This whole chapter is about glory. How do we get to glory? Because God has a purpose for bringing some of us to glory. He tore off some of that lump. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel unto dishonor? That's a question. Do you know how to answer it? Yes, indeed, the potter has power. And he makes some vessels to honor, and they're to be to the glory of his grace. And he makes some vessels to dishonor, and they will show his wrath and his power. But God has a purpose. But for these in chapter 8 and verse 28, we know what the purpose is. It's good. It's good. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God. To them who are the called. According to his purpose. God has a purpose 
and his purpose is to make us his children. His purpose is to work everything in verses 29 through 39 and guarantee it for us. His purpose was to call you and make you his son if you are his son this day. If you're his son, that he has called you to love him. He has commanded you to love him. And the word of God tells you to love him. Do you love God this morning? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Don't just let it be words from your lips. Don't just let it be mental assent. Let it be passion in your heart that yes, indeed, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, I do love. I swear my allegiance for life to Him. I will do anything He calls me to do. I will keep His commandments. I will deny myself and follow Him. Do you love God? If you love God, then Romans 8.28 is to you. God has a purpose in your life for good. Because if He didn't, you wouldn't love Him. Because it was his purpose that called you, and it was his calling that put that love of God in your heart. And because you love God, you can lay hold of this verse and know that all things work together for good. The infinite God is coordinating every event in your life to bring about good for himself and good for you. That is a wonderful promise. And these Romans took delight in it because he had already told them that they were the called of God and the called of Jesus Christ in verses 6 and 7. Of chapter 1. Don't you be overwhelmed with your life. Don't be overwhelmed. With the circumstances that face you. Because God is going to work them together for good. If you love God. Which means you're the called. According to his purpose. We didn't get far. But may the Lord bless you to lay hold of that 28th verse. And to know that it all began. With God's purpose. God's purpose resulted in you being called. To be his son. He's going to tell you how he did it in verses 29 and 30. And because of that, you love God. And by the love of God, you can lay hold of this promise. That he is working the things in your life for good. And you can trust in him for that. Not only has he taken away all condemnation in the first 16 verses. Not only is the whole creation moving towards you being revealed as a son of God. In the next verses, 17 through 25. Not only has he given you the Holy Spirit to pray on behalf of you in your infirmities, but he has promised and guaranteed that everything in your life he is working together for good according to his own purpose. Praise the glorious God of heaven. Lay hold of him today. Run to him in love. Tell him you love him in your heart. Humble yourself before him and bring him a broken and a contrite spirit. God will not despise. He wants us, his children, to love him. And he wants us to walk in love as dear children, which means as we take our break, we should be loving all the other children of God, because how can a man say, I love God, and not love his brother? Because if we love God, then we're going to love those that are begotten of him as well. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.